Support for At Length with Steve Scher comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Here, the conversations run a little longer as we try to get to the core of an argument, an idea, a mission, or a hypothesis. On the show today, Sonia Nazario, author of Enrique's Journey. He's on top of the train and six guys creep up the ladder and they throw him face down and start beating his face with a wooden club and shatter his teeth, take off his clothes, no money, so they beat him even harder. And and he's thinking, I'm going to die here. And my mother will have no idea what happened to me. Nazario spoke to Seattle area audiences April of 2015 about America's immigration dilemma and the policies that might help those families. Tens of thousands of Central American children, unaccompanied by parents or other adults, are hopping freight trains and fleeing the drug cartels, the gangs, and the thuggish authorities in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Almost 50,000 arrived by the middle of the summer of 2014 when the surge captured media and political attention. These children are often robbed, raped, beaten, or kidnapped along the way. Thousands are detained in detention cells for months before their fate, often deportation, is determined. There are at least five holding facilities in the Puget Sound area alone. Nazario came to the story personally after a conversation with the woman who was cleaning her house in Los Angeles. That woman had fled her country for a better life in America and left her children behind. I ask myself, what kind of crappy mother walks away from her children, goes 2,000 miles north, and has no idea when or if she's going to see her children again? And I'm not a mother, but I, I, I think I ask the same question many people would ask. You know, how do you do that? Uh, even if you are in very difficult circumstances, um, you are the person who loves that child the most. How can you walk away? And um, my house cleaner heard that tone in my voice of incredulity. I mean, who would do this? What what terrible person would do this? And she got defensive and said, it's not just me. There's millions of single mothers who can't feed their children, see them study past the third grade, which is all my house cleaner could do. Um, and they, they make a choice that they would rather leave their children so that they can send money back. And those kids in a material way, we'll have a better life. So she was getting defensive and saying, it's not just me. And that's what led me to really learn about this issue of the, the changing face of migration to the United States, that it's not mostly men. It's, it's mostly women and children now uh, who are here unlawfully. And these women who have left their children, promising them it's going to be one, two years, and life here is a lot tougher than they think it's going to be. Um, and it stretches into five and ten years. It is tougher. She must have felt some of that guilt. I think they all feel enormous guilt. Um, they they come and they don't buy a bed. They don't buy furniture. They assume that they're going to go back at any time. But what they're trying to do is pay their bills here, send $100 home to their children every month, and they have to save eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 to put in the smuggler's hand to bring every single child north. And so um, she felt enormous guilt. All of these women do. But um, it's simply impossible to do these reunifications with their children as quickly as they believe. And they don't, when people call back to their home countries, I think out of pride, they tend to puff up all the good stuff. You know, I'm making eight bucks an hour. I have a 
a car. No one has a car in my little town. What they don't tell people is I'm working two jobs, stuffed into an apartment with three other families, living in a converted garage, and I'm trying to save up that money for the smuggler, and it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Sonia Nazaria, when you when you embarked on Enrique's journey as a book, you decided you had to witness as much as of it as you could. Unfortunately. <laughs> so you were on those trains. I was. Tell me how, tell me the first days of, of uh, getting up onto a train. Well, I tried to build in as many safety nets as possible. I'm not suicidal. Uh, and uh, so I got uh, a, a letter from the personal assistant to the president of Mexico that, that kept me out of jail three times along the way. I had interviewed many children in ICE. Detention, our immigration authorities have detention facilities just for children coming into the United States alone. There are 83 of these spread across 12 states, five just in the Seattle area for children children coming into the United States alone from Mexico, Central America, and entering unlawfully. And I asked those kids, you know, can, can you please explain every bad thing that can happen along the way, because I would like to avoid it. Um, they did not tell me about these branches on top of the trains in the south it's like, of Mexico. It's like a jungle. This was my very first train ride, and it's pitch dark, and I'm on top of a a rounded fuel tanker, a hundred migrants on top of this train, the ones closest to the locomotive start screaming back to one another, Rama, branch. I, I didn't hear what they were saying. The train is incredibly uh, loud and I'm holding on for dear life because it bucks violently from side to side. I didn't hear a warning and this huge branch smacked me right in the face. It sent me uh, sprawling back almost off the car. I grabbed onto a rail on the top side of the car and pulled myself back up on top. And the next day when it stopped, two kids on the car behind mine said uh, another child with them swiped off by the same branch that hit me. And he was probably dead because uh, these trains, when they move forward, they produce this um, sunking, sucking wind under. So as you fall down, it pulls you right into the wheels. So uh, I had a very healthy respect for the train and for everything that could happen there. And I had many near misses, and um, I tried to take as many precautions as possible. But um, when I got home, I did the journey twice, three months each time. I was retracing the exact route the child I was writing about had taken. So three months, 1,600 miles, on top of seven freight trains up the length of Mexico, with gangsters on controlling the train tops, bandits alongside the rails, um, corrupt cops trying to do uh, rape uh, immigrants, deport them, uh, and you know, getting on and off the moving freight train. Um, one of my rules was no, no getting on and off moving freight trains. The Central Americans are crossing Mexico illegally, so they, have to, they can't get on at the train stations. And I only broke that rule uh, once when I had ridden 16 hours on a train, not to get too graphic, but the boys could do their business off the train. I, as a woman, could not. The train finally stopped. I ran to use someone's hole, their toilet. And when I came back, the train was moving. So I had to get on as it was moving. But I had seen so many children with uh, no arms and no legs because they had been cut off by the wheels of the train. So um, 
I had I had post traumatic stress after three months of doing this, and I apparently still do. I I was recruiting attorneys to represent immigrant children pro bono recently at a law firm. They were showing a clip of a new film coming out about the trains and kids riding on the trains, and I saw those images, started sweating profusely, my heart started racing. So apparently, I still have some post traumatic stress. Right. You've talked about doing some uh, some therapy work. I, I did six months of therapy once I returned home. Uh, Latinos culturally uh, don't believe in therapy. They say that, no estoy loco, I'm not crazy, so you have to be crazy to go into therapy, except for Argentines. I'm Argentine-American. We have the highest uh, percentage of people in therapy of any nation on earth, apparently. Did it help? It, it did help, yes. I'm a big proponent of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so it's loud, it's filthy. Uh, what's it smell like? up there on, on the top of the train? Well, everyone is sweating in the South. It's incredibly hot. Um, oftentimes, people buy the uh, train train tracks are burning rubbish. Uh, that's how you get rid of trash in a lot of these towns. Um, there are often sewage ditches that run next to the rails. So it's a fairly unpleasant uh, exercise riding on top of trains. Uh, there were you know, there were some wonderful moments that I don't talk about. I was on top of the train as we neared Mexico City, and the fog was lifting in the morning, and I could see the uh, pre-Aztec pyramids, Teotihuacan, in the distance. Um, there were times when I was on top of the trains, and there would be, um, you know, uh, hundreds of people on top of the train, and they'd be 4 a.m., everyone's singing to try to stay awake, and we'd go into this cloud of fireflies in the middle of the night. So there were very mystical moments. It was a wonderful adventure, and that's how many migrant boys see it until something bad happens to them on top of those trains. How did you know that there were uh, thugs on the train? I mean, what did you see? Well, in the southernmost state of Chiapas, I did use the letter that I had from the president to convince an immigrant rights group to come with me on top of the train, just for that first of 13 states. The gangs completely controlled there, the train tops. I was usually the only woman on the train, and the few women would write, Tengo Sida, I have AIDS, on their chest in magic marker to try to prevent uh, being raped. So I had, um, these, these, uh, this immigrant rights group was armed at the time. They had not patrolled the train tops in 14 months because they would get shot at by the gangsters on top of the train. Uh, so they reluctantly came with me on just that first uh, state. And I could see the gangsters going from car to car, knifing people, robbing people. When they got too close, the guys around me fired uh, uh, rounds of their AK-47s into the air, and luckily the gangsters uh, didn't... Uh, didn't fire back. So um, I could see what the gangsters, they would go from car to car and surround migrants and say, your money or your life, and strip them of their clothes, and they're hopped up on crack cocaine, oftentimes throw you down to the wheels below. And I could see some of that activity on my trains. Well, you have a very frightening passage in here about what happened to Enrique. He's on top of the train, and six guys creep up the ladder, and they throw him face down and start beating his face with a wooden club and shatter his teeth, um, take off his clothes, no money, so they beat him even harder. And one of these uh, thugs starts to strangle him with a bit of his own clothing. He's trying to buffer that those blows and pull this away from his throat, his clothes. And uh, I, one of these guys, the thug yells out, just, just throw him off the train. And he's thinking... I'm going to die here, and my mother 
will have no idea what happened to me. And suddenly that train jostles for an instant. He's able to fling himself off going 40 miles an hour. And when he comes to the next day, they've left him just his underwear. He's covered in blood, eyes filled with blood. And uh, these women see him along the tracks and say, go home, you're, you're gonna die doing this. And he says, I have to reach my mother. I, I have never seen uh, determination like I saw. Uh, this child was willing to face down any obstacle. And it's the good that we get from migrants because uh, migrants uh, are willing to leave everything they know and love to come to a foreign place. It's as if you would be plucked up from Washington state and put in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or India. You didn't know the language, the culture. You didn't know anyone there. It takes incredible determination and gumption to do that. And that's why migrants are um, really helpful our country in so many ways, why more Nobel laureates are, come from other countries than, than come from the United States here in the United States, uh, because they, they take risks. They are willing to try to overcome obstacles. They see things from outside the box, and it helps our country a lot. For these kids, it's also just that desire to be reunited with your mother. We sat by the Rio Grande in Mexico, staring across to Texas, and he would, would look over at Texas and talk about his, his yearning to be with his mother, to have, to be in her arms, that he, she, she would always end her phone conversations to him with, um, I love you, I miss you. And uh, that would drive him whenever anything bad happened to him. And he, he had to make eight attempts to get through Mexico. He was deported seven times. We're not the only folks deporting a lot of people. Mexico deported 107,000 Central Americans last year. And unfortunately, as part of doing our dirty business, uh, President Obama has asked Mexico to um, stop these children from arriving at our border and claiming asylum as part of the politics of immigration. Mexico last year deported 20,000 immigrant children who were coming here alone four times what they did two years before. And they're doing that because we gave them $90 million to do that. We asked, demanded, and paid them to do that. And I think it's disgraceful that we stop children from arriving at our borders who are, in many cases, are fleeing for their very lives, have been threatened multiple times by the narcos, by the gangs. Um, we are sending them back, in many cases, to their deaths, these children. And yet you wrote, and Kathy Wilkerson, I think, in the LA Times wrote that a lot of times these kids crossing from Guatemala into Mexico go right under the noses of Mexican and Guatemalan border authorities and police who are obviously looking the other way for their own benefit. You know, obviously there's huge corruption uh, among the authorities in Mexico. I doc documented a dozen different types of police agencies, corrupt cops who would target these children. Uh, it's very systematic, the fleecing of these children and other migrants by the authorities as they come north, raping the girls in many cases. But right now they're getting paid more by our government than they feel that they could get by, uh, by you know, uh, robbing these migrants as they head north. $90 million is a lot of money. And so for right now, they are really trying to stop these kids from arriving at our border. Order. Last year, 68,000 children were apprehended coming into the United States unlawfully alone from Mexico, Central America, 10 times what it was three years before. This year, they're projecting that it will be only 40,000, so about two-thirds of that number. And that's largely because we're paying Mexico to stop them. By the way, when Enrique, feeling wistful about his mother, um, when he gets there, 
when they're together, you've documented this, you put up uh, blog posts, they struggle. How are they doing? They more than struggle. And I've interviewed hundreds of these kids, and unfortunately, it's the same story. Uh, they, uh, these kids, uh, you know, the moms feel that they've left these children with all the best intentions. They've come here so that they can send money back, their kids can eat, they can study. And Enrique's sister goes to college for a while, which is almost unheard of in her neighborhood. So um, they feel, his mother feels like she's made the ultimate sacrifice, living with 10 photographs of her children, not having them there with her on Christmas Day, on their birthdays, living enormous loneliness uh, to provide for her children. But Enrique doesn't see it that way. When he gets here, all those resentments of, you left me, you said you were coming right back, what happened? And those surface, and and all of virtually all of these kids say, I would have rather had my mother by my side to love and protect me than had her in the U.S. sending the Nike shoes, the soccer ball, even the money to be able to eat. I I, I talked to a boy in a I, I saw a boy in a school in Los Angeles say right to his mom's face. Even a dog doesn't leave its litter, and I think this is one of the big downsides of this is. These mothers lose, uh, in too many cases, the love of their children. And um, I think separating these families has huge consequences, not just for the families, but for our society. And many of these children, they don't get that love they envisioned with their mother. They have these very conflicted homes. And so they try to find that love with the gang or girls getting pregnant with an older guy disproportionately. And so I think it has a social fallout as well. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a real uh, problem with these kids. You, you have talked about how you wrote this book, Enrique's Journey, in part to humanize, to give the human face to these folks. I was also wondering about Enrique. And the violence he encountered, the violence all these people encountered, the violence you encountered, those are also individuals. How? What's the line that separates an Enrique from the people who tried to murder him on the train? The larger question of what drives one person to be still struggle. Enrique struggles, but he's still struggling, right? And and he's gone through prison. He's 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 been with his mother. He continues to deal with with these issues. Why do some people yeah. go to the dark side? You know, that's a very complex issue. I think I think they don't have love. They don't have uh, opportunities. They many of them are on drugs. Um, some of the people who do the worst things are on drugs and are trying to get their next fix. So, it's a lack of hope. You said Chiapas was the worst. That that that's a place that's. Uh, did you call it hell? Something so, like that. <laughs> But you worse said that, than hell worse, some days. But you said Veracruz was a state where people uh, opened their arms to these migrant children. What's going on? What happened in Veracruz, and why is that a different place? And I was talking about this uh, yesterday at the Gates Foundation as something that uh, all of us should emulate, uh, not treating these children in the worst way, which we have politically since this surge in kids began, but in viewing them as the people in Veracruz do. Um, Chiapas is really the heart of darkest, the, the southernmost state. Most children beaten, robbed, or raped before they get out of the first of 13 states they have to cross. 
Um, but it's out central state of Veracruz in Mexico where there would be a curve in the tracks. For, for some reason, this train had to go slower. And these little pueblitos, towns, um, when people heard that whistle, they I watched them all run out of their huts with these bundles of food in their arms. And they the villagers would all start waving and smiling and shouting out to these migrants on top of the train. Um, they threw bread tortillas, sandwiches, whatever fruit was in season. So when I was on the top of the train, they were pummeling me with these large branches of bananas, rolls of crackers. If they didn't have that, I'd watch them come out and give bottles of water. And if they didn't have that, I'd see them line up next to the tracks and put their hands together in prayer and give a silent prayer for these migrants as they pass by. Um, I was very moved by what by seeing this because they are the poorest Mexicans who live along the rails could barely feed their own children but they were giving a little of what they had to these strangers from other lands and all of them said I am doing this because it's the Christian thing the right thing to do I may not have read the 92 references to the stranger in the Old Testament or the 36 in the Torah but I know this is what Jesus would do if he were right here standing in my shoes. It's, uh, it, it's incredible to see how people live their faith, and I think it's a model for all of us. You went back to report on what happened to Enrique after he threw himself off the train. What happened to him? Uh, he lands in this uh, along the rails. Uh, he passes out, and he goes, uh, he stumbles and a field hand sees him along the tracks, takes him to the nearest town where uh, the townspeople, the mayor uh, lays him out in front of the church and uh, has to contact the local mayor who has to make a decision. Do I let him die and I have to pay for the cemetery plot or do I send him to uh, the doctor and try to save his life? And luckily he sends him to the doctor and uh, Enrique, um, this doctor, you know, uh, tells him go home like everyone else and he says no I'm going to keep going and he stitches him together and gives him medicine and uh, Enrique hitches tries to hitch a ride because he's limping he can barely walk and it's a board of uh, an immigration agent in Mexico who picks him up so once again he is tossed back across the border into Guatemala. When you speak about this now one of the things that people ask you is when did you intervene when don't you intervene you talk about bearing witness as a way to be a journalist, but you deal with the question of intervention. How do you, how do you talk to yourself about that? Journalists are not, we all have ethics, uh, ethical rules in whatever profession we go into. For journalists is that we're not supposed to change reality and then write about that, write about an altered reality. That's considered dishonest to our readers. We're not supposed to pay people for information because they may tell us what we think we want to hear, so that can corrupt information. So we're trying to be of service to our readers. So that meant that largely I did not help people that I encountered uh, on my journey. Um, and 30 or 40 people a day would ask me for help, for money, for food, unless you are in imminent danger. That's the dividing line for me. And if you're in imminent danger and I can help you, and I'm not also in imminent danger, um, 
I will, and I did with many children who uh, along the way. Uh, like the the girl that you mentioned who had been gang raped by the river by these two thugs, and I had been in that same spot the day before. I was interviewing her in a jail cell, and they were saying, you know, uh, from a, the guys who raped her from across the jail bars, when we all get deported across the border to Guatemala, our homies control that town. They're going to finish you off. I made sure she was not deported to that particular town. But, you know, uh, Enrique, I follow him for two weeks along the border, the the U.S.-Mexico border. He's trying to come up with $10 to buy a phone card, um, call Honduras, try to get his mom's phone number again because his little scrap of paper he's carrying with his mom's phone number has been robbed from him by the gangsters on top of the train. And I have a, a cell phone in my purse the whole time. I don't offer it to him because that would change the course of his story. I believe that there's a power in putting myself and in the middle of the misery and watching that misery unfold so I can convey it to my readers in the most powerful way possible. I view my mission as to grab you by the throat and take you on a ride into these worlds that you might not otherwise see or encounter to really feel these issues to the bone. And maybe that will get you to read to the end, educate yourself about these issues, and maybe even want to do something about what I describe. Many readers have, and I've seen this time and time again with stories. If I can tell the story powerfully enough, um, it might move you to do something. I wrote about uh, hunger among school children in California, how schools were not availing themselves of federally funded breakfast programs. When I wrote about that, I showed children who were hungry in a school and how that affected their ability to learn. And overnight, California went from a third to two-thirds of schools uh, providing federally funded breakfast programs. So, And with Enrique's journey, many um, colleges have used this as a freshman read. So um, 80 universities, hundreds of high schools. Uh, and uh, these students uh, have mobilized to start microloan programs in Central America. They have built schools in Central America, water systems. They've gone south to uh, build homes for single mothers during their spring break. So I have seen people be moved by what I've written, and that's what I try to do. How did Enrique react? When he read it, he said, it's all true. And it was difficult to read about my drug use, my drug addiction, to see it in black and white. And he's not, he's not a person of many words, which is, uh, you know, for journalists, teenage boys are like the worst subjects, <laughs> other than babies, like no one talks less. So, uh, so th- that's all he said. But I think I, his mother in particular has been moved by the response and how it has served to educate so many people. I send her the letters and the emails of people who email me every day saying, I was raised racist, anti-immigrant. I was taught to hate all immigrants. And um, I was forced to read your book in college or high school, and now there's a young adult version in my middle school, and it's changed my perspective. I didn't even know there was a different way of looking at this. You've taken me inside one immigrant family. You've put me in their shoes, and I... I understand much better, and she, I think she loves that that is taking place. How did he react when he was trying to get that, make that phone call and get that phone card, when he must have known that you had a phone? Did he just badger you the whole time? No, because I think uh, one thing I do is I really explain to people I'm writing about 
Uh, this is what I'm doing. This is why I think it's important to tell this story, to tell people what is pushing you out of Honduras? What are you willing to do to get through Mexico? That no 700 mile long stupid fence that we build, 97% of people, by the way, who try repeatedly are able to get past that fence, will stop someone as determined in you. And who are your new neighbors here in Washington state? Migrants used to go to six states, pretty much. And then in the last 20 years, they've gone everywhere. And that's engendered a lot of pushback and hostility. And so I really described that to him fully. And also, uh, I, I told him, I cannot help you in any way. You are doing this because you think it's an important story to tell, too. And I was very clear about that. I mean, he got that. He never asked me for help. I find that very profound, that he does get that and that the other people you talk to get that because they are bearing witness with you. Is that how they see it? I, I think so. And also just the fact that they could see me on top of that train. Um, you know, uh, I did not eat. I did not drink water. I um, pretty much traveled with a red rain jacket strapped around my waist and a little bag with some toilet paper, a notebook, a pen. That's all I had on me. Uh, I was often covered in soot. I The train is sometimes so hot I, in the South, I couldn't touch it. It would burn my hands. At times so cold that people freeze to death on top of these trains, including children. Uh, they saw me go through a lot of misery to tell not n nothing close to what they went through because I would get off the train when it would stop and I'd you know eat a warm meal and I'd sleep in a warm bed but they saw me go through enough misery that um, they really opened up to me because they they saw what I was willing to do to tell their story. Just to clarify you didn't get off every night and eat a, eat a, a warm meal and I, get I, in a warm I would bed. I get off when the train would finally stop and that could be 24 hours, 36 hours, but when it finally stopped, I would get off. I did do the it in pieces because I thought it would be safer, and uh, I, I was not going to sleep on that train because I had seen so many children who would try to tie themselves to the train or sleep a little bit, uh, hoping that, you know, things would be all right, and one big jostle or one gangster who shows up on your car and throws you off, and uh, you're in deep trouble. So I had resolved to never sleep on top of that train. You have gone on, though, with this book to be involved in groups that are trying to help these kids. What is KIND? KIND stands for Kids in Need of Defense. Their uh, website is supportkind.org. Um, children coming into the U.S. alone uh, are apprehended often by Border Patrol. They are held in these detention centers, and then they're released nine out of ten times to a relative, sometimes a mother or father, ordered to go to immigration court. If you're a murderer in this country, we all have heard, you're, if you can't afford an attorney, a public defender will be assigned to you but not if you're an immigrant, even an immigrant child. And so what I've seen in court is immigration court are a seven-year-old boy shaking with fear. Seventy percent of these children cannot afford an attorney, and so they're, being, they're standing before that judge with no one to help them argue their asylum claim. Uh, the, the government has an attorney arguing why you should, that child should be deported. So I watched this seven-year-old just shake with complete fright. Last week a ch in, in the immigration court in Alexandria, Virginia, Kind described a four-year-old, two three-year-olds being propped up before that judge, being asked to make this case. The asylum uh, application is 12 pages in English. Uh, and so uh, I, I think this is disgraceful that this country expects a child to do that when 
It's life or death circumstances oftentimes being deported back to Honduras. The UN found that six in 10 of these children, uh, the primary driver for leaving right now, unlike when Enrique came more than a decade ago, is violence. They have been threatened multiple times, and that's up from 13% in 2006. So big, Honduras has the number one homicide rate in the world. In three years, 500 children, 13 and younger, have been murdered in a, in a country that has fewer people than New York City. Can you imagine the streets of New York City littered with 500 bodies in three years of kids 13 and younger? That's what's happening. And um, we are expecting, we are sending kids back to that. And so if you don't have an attorney, 90% uh, are ordered deported. If you do have an attorney, 70% get relief to stay in this country legally. KIND recruits pro bono attorneys to represent these kids, and we've recruited more than 10,000 across the country. This effort started in a different guise here in Seattle uh, under a group called VAIJ, V-A-I-J, which has now merged into KIND, and they started this work of representing these children who cannot represent themselves really in an, in an effective way. And, I, and uh, so I, I believe that we need more attorneys to step forward to help KIND, and we need the government to step up. Um, some cities and states have recognized this. California put up several million dollars. New York has put up several million dollars. But I think the federal government, if you cannot afford an attorney, if you can't get a pro bono attorney, the federal government should step forward and provide a child an attorney when it's life or death. You were talking to some people from KIND in Seattle, and what are they telling you about how the children today who are incarcerated are being interrogated. Well, in the last year, we've seen about 350 of these children land in Washington state. That's a doubling of what we saw the year before. Um, many are Central American children who are being forced to join gangs or join the narcos in Central America, and they are fleeing those situations. The Mexican children uh, who would come to the United States are not entitled to their day in court uh, before an, uh, an immigration court to claim asylum in the United States. Largely, they are sent back within three days. But in the last year or so, the government has been holding some of these Mexican children who they believe are working for the narco cartels for Mexico, and they are trying to get information out of them about these cartels. Some of these kids, let's be clear, are working voluntarily for the cartels to make money. But many of them, uh, and kind staff attorneys said, perhaps 60 to 70% of these kids are forced to work for the cartel. And what I was hearing from them, the kind attorneys, is that our border patrol agents uh, on the border are uh, interrogating these children without an attorney present. They are covering up their name badges with black duct tape so the kids don't know who they are. And they are threatening even to rape these children if they don't divulge information about the cartels. They are, um, they are beating them up. They are slapping them. Uh, this is our government doing this. You also talked to the Gates Foundation. How could the Gates Foundation help in this situation? Well, Gates for six years um, funded the efforts of VAGE before they merged into KIND. And so I think that there are many ways that they could help. They could, um, uh, again, fund the efforts of KIND. 70% of these kids still going to court with no attorney. Um, we need to vastly expand these efforts. KIND is only in seven cities, including Seattle. So if you're a kid who's released to a parent or guardian in a part of the country that doesn't have a KIND office, you're sunk, pretty much, unless 
you can uh, you can't get a pro bono attorney in those areas. So we are trying to expand our offices to other places, and I think they can uh, fund educational efforts. Uh, Gates has been very active in uh, the educational arena, and there are many things. Uh, you know, I think the first thing you have to do with these kids to help them with their education is they don't fear being deported tomorrow. It's hard to focus on your studies when you fear that. So getting them legal representation is number one. But beyond that, you know, Seattle used to have a newcomer school. That's a school where children recently arrived can go be together. They have more psychologists there to deal with the multiple traumas they've been through, help them um, establish relationship with parents who really are strangers who they resent, um, and can help them really get on the ground and not fear those second and third generation Latinos who are sometimes harshest on the newcomers, call them wetbacks and do beat them up. And so it allows these kids to have that safety for that first year. That was uh, closed down for lack of funding. I think Gates could help uh, reopen that newcomer school. And I think there's many more things that, you know, you can work with parents to help them um, with programs that help them really learn to navigate the ex educational system uh, because many of these children don't have um, a parent who's gone beyond the third or sixth grade and can help them with these things. There are many ways in which they could help. Thank you. You're welcome. It's delightful to be here. Thank you. Sonia Nazario's book is assigned in schools and universities around the world. She speaks to organizations and communities about the difficult journey, the hard conditions young people are fleeing from Central America, and the need to at least provide them with legal representation at immigration hearings. For more information about KIND and about Sonia Nazario, as well as the other guest speakers visiting the UW, search for UW Alumni Association. For more interviews with those guests, search for At Length with Steve Scher. Thanks for listening. Support for At Length with Steve Scher comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Mm -hmm.